for those of us who are tired of giving, who are tired of having to use so much creative energy or mental energy in trying to figure out God, liturgy offers so much mystery and just a kind of relaxed nature that you can rest in. It's a very restful kind of spiritual encounter. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show, you guys, because right now we are in a series called For the Love of Faith Shakers. You know me. I am very interested in thinkers and leaders and writers and people of faith who are pushing into important and challenging spaces that are pushing on old forms that aren't holding anymore, or maybe, maybe never did. They're shaking things up and giving people a chance to view faith from a a new vantage point, right? Obviously most of our country's denominations, churches have a sordid history of not just disregarding, but stifling and even persecuting, obviously, Black voices in the church. And we still see a divide here. It's still really hard to find diverse churches on a Sunday morning that are genuinely that way. And race plus church is a topic just wrought with trauma. It's important to me right now to bring into my spaces, at least, some Black leaders who are educating us to not just the faith perspective, but the lived experience of the black community, us in the white community, I mean, and doing brave and profound work, moving us as a culture forward. The white community just has, there's nothing really else to do except for us to listen and learn. There isn't, nobody needs any more white words, you know, into the space. It's time to listen to our Black leaders and our people of faith that have something so important to say to us. Now, one of these people is with us today, and it is none other than Cole Arthur Riley. I started following her maybe six or eight or nine months ago and just couldn't believe what a powerful voice she is. And she's young. She's in her early thirties. I think she told me she was 31 and yet she brings this gravitas to the work that is so wise and bold. So Cole, let me tell you who she is. If you don't know, she's an author, she's a liturgist, she's a speaker. She's focused on sharing poems and prayers for black voices. Okay. So her prayers focus on black justice, black lament, black rage, black dignity and liberation and rest. They're creating this place to land for people who are often unable to find that same rest in traditional religious spaces that are often quite dominant, right? She produces and curates content to guide others into deeper thoughts and embodiments of faith. Uh, she's put her whole heart and soul into a project called Black Liturgies, which you can follow on Instagram and should immediately. That's where I was introduced to Cole. And at Black Liturgies, she says that she seeks to integrate the truths of Black dignity, lament, rage, justice, and rest into written prayers. It's powerful stuff for everyone, for all of us to read. And then she has very recently released 
a book called This Here Flesh, and it is a masterpiece. And I did not say that lightly. So we'll discuss that and her very important faith work and more in our conversation. She is gentle, like uh, talking to her is both soothing and energizing. And I was able to tell her what I see in her and how proud I am of her work in the world and what I've learned from her. And I love her perspective. She sits at more than one intersection in which she speaks directly into and you'll see that in this conversation, but this is a good one. You guys, she's a good one. She is a good one. I'm, I'm so excited for those of you who are new to her that you get to meet her today. So absolutely enjoy this conversation with the smart, the wise, the interesting, the incredibly gifted. Her, her gifts of language are over the top. And so yay for us, because today we have Cole Arthur Riley. You guys, I was just telling Cole before we hit record that I was never so happy to see her name as a confirmed (laughs) guest in this series. I wanted to talk to you. So thank you so much for accepting the invitation. I'm just delighted to meet you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So, okay, Cole, I started following your work on Instagram because I just started seeing people that I respect saying things that you were saying and reposting some of your work. And it was also very like lovely and profound. And so then I started following you and I was like, oh my gosh, look at this girl, look at her go. You're one of my favorite accounts in Instagram. And every time your posts come up in my feed, I am like, this is literally why Jesus invented social media. Like this is it. (laughs) So listen, I've sort of high leveled for my listening community a little bit about who you are, but if you wouldn't mind for the people that are new to you, new to your work, can you just sort of tell us broadly, like in broad strokes, who you are, like where you are in the world, who your people are and essentially what it is you do. Sure. I'm, I'm a writer. I am also a daughter and a granddaughter and I'm married and I, I was born and for the most part raised in Pittsburgh, but now I live in upstate New York spending most of my time writing, but I also, I live right by Cornell University where I serve as the spiritual teacher and resident. So I get to interact with college students a lot and create programming and resources for the Dean of Students office there. So, yeah. That is so awesome and shocking because for anybody who is actually watching our interview on my YouTube channel, instead of just listening to it, like if you walked into the store, I'd be like, ma'am, you cannot buy beer. (laughs) You, you need to go back home to your parents where you live and go to your high school. Like how old are you? I know. I mean, listen, this is just, since I started this account, I'm like, I've never felt more young. People think I'm a teenager. I'm actually 31. Let me start here with you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the role that writing has played in your life before we kind of get a little bit more granular on what it is you're doing right now in the world. Have you always been a writer and a reader? What were your earlier influences? Because your gifts are pretty pronounced. I'm curious if this is a space you've been cultivating from an early age. 
Yes, it has. My family says you were a writer before you were a speaker. I was a very, very quiet child. I actually had an anxiety disorder called selective mutism, which is essentially when children are unable to speak around most people. They kind of have like a small number that they're able to communicate around. And so I have a lot of early memories just feeling this kind of restraint as far as spoken language, where I'm just like, I I know I need to say something, but I felt unable to get out the words, which we gradually worked on. And here we are, but it's taken time. And my father, wise as he is, I think, knew I needed some kind of tool for expression, you know, if I was going to survive. And so he made words and stories and writing such a big part of our house, which is so funny. People think I come from, you know, my dad raised me, came from this, you know, father who's this literary person. And he actually isn't, he's not really a reader. It was really just an act of care for me. So he would have us do like poem contests or little writing contests, or we could write poems to get out of chores you know, so it'd be like, do you <laughs> want to clean the baseboards or you want to write a poem, you know? And oh my God, he <laughs> that is brilliant. I know, he is brilliant. I'm going to take that parenting tradition. But, you know, slowly I found my own voice and started to, I would say that was my earliest form of confidence was, I mean, I can really explore myself. I can really do what I'm seeing everyone else do on a daily basis and in a different way. So you must have always then, in addition to just having a rare and early mastery of language, you must have also had a pretty rich interior life because your work has a lot of depth to it. It's one thing to write pretty things. It's another thing for them to be like absolutely packed with meaning and depth. And I'm guessing you were a kid, a teenager, an adolescent in your head a lot. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, quiet people tend to be observing and anxious people. You know, I've actually heard people say, you know, the more afraid you are, the more observant you are, or the more observant you are, the more afraid you are, because you realize all of these things that can hurt you. And as, you know, a a little person trying to make sense of what's safe, when am I safe, where am I safe, you have to really take account for a lot of things. And also, because you can't always communicate them out loud, you really have to explore those places in yourself. So I do think, I mean, I, not until recently have I really begun imagining my younger self and thinking, man, you were really inside a lot in your interior world a lot. Mm -hmm. So the way that most of us know you is through your Instagram account where you share essentially written prayers on social media and you really like, you really came in here and kicked up a little dust in religious spaces in a good way. Your prayers focus on lament and rage and justice and healing written specifically for the black community. Although, I mean, you've got one white girl who's never missed a single thing you've ever said. (laughs) I think I've liked every post you've ever made. I'd love to hear the origin story of of that space and what compelled you to create it, what that experience has been like for you and what you hope for it to be. I started Black Liturgies at the end of June of 2020, so like a year and a half ago. And it was as the world was 
contending with the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, and we had the resurfacing of the murders of Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain, and it was all happening in a very small period of time, a very short window of time. And when I'm most honest, I say Black liturgies was born out of anger. It was born out of rage, and I, I hope it was a sacred rage. Maybe most of it, maybe not all of it, but I felt like I needed a space where Black grief, Black anger was taken seriously, a space that felt like it was capable of holding those things without rushing past them. And I was really, I I think I was just looking for community. Honestly, I would go to these, you know, church services, these liturgical church services and just find myself exhausted. You know, like sometimes you want to read the beauty of Episcopal liturgy. There's so much goodness in that, but sometimes it's just, there are seasons where it's particularly difficult to recite words written by a dead white man who frankly didn't care about me or my blackness. And so I'm supposed to say those words. I'm supposed to assimilate into those words in that season. And I just, I couldn't. So it's like, maybe there are some, you know, liturgy loving, word loving, literature loving people out there who are, would be interested in this space. And I really just didn't have an imagination for what it would be. I wasn't very active on social media before this. My, my editor is the publisher that I'm working with right now. They're like, where are you? Like, we, it's like, we can't find traces of you <laughs> before this thing. My dreaming at that point was, was pretty confined. Now, as it's grown, I can see in hindsight why it's grown the way it has because of the time and because of the election and because of a lot of Christians leaving spaces where, you know, that felt violent, that were violent to them. And so I found, you know, Christians and non-Christians, Black people and white people kind of coming to this space in hopes of something different. Hmm. It had to have been a little surprising to see the groundswell of response to your words. And I have my own opinions about why that was I am a variety of factors for sure. But to me, you have managed to combine this really rare, these rare energies of having both like a, a righteous fury, like a sacred rage, as you called it a second ago, which is appropriate and right. And you combine it with this healing, gentle, like nurturing energy, like of a mother. And those things generally feel like they would compete that you get to pick one or the other, you know, you get to like come out in a blaze or you get to be like the tender soothsayer and somehow you are both. And so I'm not surprised that people are drawn to your work because you have provided a space where your readers get to feel it all. They get to run the gamut of human emotion as they encounter, you know, this next iteration of white supremacy in our generation and in our culture. And it's profound. I mean, it's really profound work. I'm curious about your faith background because What's your spiritual background here in terms of church, in terms of spiritual formation? Because you obviously are reaching toward liturgical practices. Was that your story or did you come to that as an adult? Yeah, I came to it as an adult. I wasn't even raised in a church going family. I don't think my dad or my stepmom would even call themselves Christians. I do think that my household 
possessed a kind of spirituality that was more about stories and words, like I said, definitely humor, myth, even, you know, my family's big on myth and just making up these stories and passing on these legends to children. And so there was, there was a sense of spirituality, but it certainly wasn't, you know, Orthodox Christianity. I encountered that later on in life, just in my own exploration, starting late in high school, I became curious about, you know, organized religion and organized religious spaces and Judaism as well. And then in college, I really encountered for the, for the first time in a, in a, prolonged way, I guess, like a white dominated Christian space, a white evangelical Christian space. But at the same time, I was I was going to college, you know, I'm a first generation college student. So I was experiencing this newness in like the college classroom where I studied writing and I was reading, you know, Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison and James Baldwin for the first time. And so my kind of spiritual awakening was completely kind of entangled with this, you know, literary awakening in the classroom. And it was just very, it's just very difficult to kind of piece those things apart. It was just all kind of one big experience for me. So I think my spirituality has always been given to kind of like storytelling and fiction even, and finding a lot of spirituality in Black authors, which that's just such a central theme in so much of Black writing. It wasn't until after college that I first encountered a liturgical space, and I was in a season of depression. I'm sure many of us have experienced that, where you just feel like you don't you don't have the words to to pray to experience God, and in that way, I think liturgy can be a real harbor, a real relief to those of us who are just exhausted because it just is kind of this, you know, gentle offering for you. It's just laid out and it doesn't ask a lot of you. And that was a season of life, that that season of very intense depression that I kind of began to clung to liturgy in a different way. And I don't think it's for everyone. I don't think it's the best way to encounter the divine. But I think for, for those of us who are tired of giving, who are tired of having to use so much creative energy or mental energy and trying to figure out God. Liturgy offers so much mystery and just a kind of relaxed nature that you can rest in. It's a very restful kind of spiritual encounter, at least I think. Mm, what a good way to describe it. I also came to liturgy later in life. That which just wasn't a part of my sort of spiritual scaffolding that I ever had around me. And so I, coming to it later, I find it profoundly meaningful. And I'm a person also who values words like you do. And so something about the cadence of it and the nature that it's, it's something that I get to hook into, not something I have to create, or I even have to figure out, I just get to receive it is new for me in a wonderful way in the last probably five years. And so obviously a sinner spoke of liturgies, of, you know, prayer. And that's sort of your structure. Prayer is so vulnerable. It is such a vulnerable practice. And I'm curious if sharing these prayers ever scared you, or if was there ever a moment that you wanted to take a prayer back either because it was too tender or maybe because of the response that it received. And then like, finally on this multi-part question. How do you stay in this vulnerable place? 
because it's not an easy place to be. And it'd be easier if you didn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, it's terrifying. I'm still terrified. Most people assume that everything I write is born out of personal experience, but actually I'm drawing a lot on conversations and friendships with, you know, other black people. So I'm not always giving, you know, my own story, even though it might seem like that, but the origin is, is not always me at least, but on the occasions that it is say the, the post, I did a post about queerness last June for pride month or even in talking about depression. I, I always feel so raw after sharing those And I've really had to balance any kind of vulnerability with fostering a withholding and even, you know, a kind of secrecy, a sacred secrecy, even in other aspects of my life to make sure that not everything I write is seen by another set of eyes. And that kind of, yeah, is is a really good way to, I think, protect those of us who have to share so much publicly. The post that I did for Pride Month. I was explaining, you know, you're being led through these liturgies by my queerness just as much as my blackness. And it was really costly. That was the first time I had said that. And you can kind of assume social media is weird. You can kind of just assume the people who are following you or just like just like think the same things as you. And so to find, you know, these people, some people that I had built relationships with over the course of that first year who had uplifted my work, you know, who I'd spoken to in DMs, you know, were now in some way rejecting me. I just bled followers that day, which is fine. It's good. That's a good purge to have, frankly. And, you know, that rejection is only as big as it reawakens or calls to memory other experiences of rejection. So it wasn't even necessarily about that social media rejection, but it just stirred so many memories in me, took me to so many places in my interior life that I think were really costly but that was a cost I had assessed for. I, I planned for, I knew how I was going to receive care after I shared that. And I think we constantly have to reevaluate that cost and make plans for how are you going to be cared for in the wake of what that costs. Oh, that's so good. I, I want to ask you this, and it's just going to be your speculation and or your opinion. In my work and in my world, also being an outspoken Christian LGBTQ ally that came at a cost for me as well, professionally, socially, everything, all the things. And I'd love to hear your opinion because I don't know what your like analytic breakdown is like on your Instagram following, how many of your readers are black or people of color versus white. I don't know what that is, but it's interesting that there is a potential assumption that at the intersection of two marginalized communities. So one might think that a largely black community who absolutely has a lived daily experience of marginalization would be like first in line to be allies to the LGBTQ community. There's just so much shared pain, so much shared disenfranchisement, so much Legally, socially, relationally. I mean, it's a similar path. Obviously, very different histories and constructs, but similar pain, I should say. Yes. Mm-hmm. What's your opinion on why that often is a problematic intersection in terms of mutual support? I mean, I have so many thoughts. When you were speaking, 
I was thinking of James Baldwin. And he's someone that I think, you know, even a lot of white conservatives will post about James Baldwin, you know, post a James Baldwin quote and kind of use him for his blackness, but deny his queerness or just suppress his queerness in death. But he was a gay man. And the reason why, you know, say Stokely Carmichael or James Baldwin aren't remembered in their fullness is because people aren't willing to admit that their thoughts and their work was informed by those things. And so if you, you know, if you want to uplift them, you're also uplifting the gay community. And so I think about that. And I think that happens in white communities. I think it happens in, in black conservative Christian communities as well. To me, and I know that I, I don't want this to sound like an oversimplification, but I think there are people who are threatened by other people's beliefs. And there are people who have this inner stability, the stability of heart and what they think and believe about the world that that makes someone else's experience of living not a threat. And I think so many conservative Christians, black and white, who have been formed by white supremacy, you know, that supremacy that's in there, that's in our, like, it's not just be Christian because this is good. It's be Christian because this is right right? This is supreme. This is the the best thing you can be. And it's, it, and it's just sinister on every level. And it creates this mentality that anything in opposition is this threat, you know? And instead of, I just think those of us who have made it out, <laughs> I don't mean, um, no, you, no, you do mean it. And yeah, I'm with you. Yes. yes. Those of us who have, who have yes. made it out, I think we can look back and see just how restricted people are, just how emotionally restricted people are in those spaces where they feel like they just can't tell the truth about what they actually think. I think it's, it's all just, I shouldn't say all, but it's just most of what people say they think is not true. I say this all the time. I just think most of what people say they believe is not true. It's about belonging and trying to maintain some semblance of belonging. And if you feel the only way you can do that is by hating gay people and being homophobic, most people are going to double down on that homophobia because what does it mean for me and my experience of belonging if I want to push against this? I worked for a conservative Christian organization for a few years out of college homophobic, um, transphobic, all of it. And I would say 99% of my coworkers were queer affirming. They weren't, we weren't allies. We weren't being good allies, but they were queer affirming behind doors, trans affirming behind doors, but they wouldn't speak it because what would that mean? And so you had this group of people so restricted. So, I mean, I could say a lot about that, but I think it's really about a feeling of belonging. And when you have that inner stability of heart, it gives you courage to to step away and say, I trust that I am I'm going to find belonging elsewhere, that it's not worth sacrificing me on That's the right. altar of acceptance. You know? That's exactly right. I have said before, when I stood on the precipice of this way of being in public, not just private, you are right. This is happening behind closed doors. But I remember when I could no longer bear the cognitive dissonance of having an internal conviction that I was too afraid to voice. What a terrible, what a terrible way to live. I mean, I just left all my gay friends out there all by themselves. Like with, it was just wildly cowardly. It was just, I was just afraid. That's the bottom line. I was afraid. I knew the cost. I knew I would lose a lot, but there came a moment that was just really clear for me when I just said, I just looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, Jen, you have two choices. You either 
get to maintain your career as you've built it, or you get your integrity, but you do not get both. So you're going to, you need to pick which one do you want to go? And I pick my integrity. What's been interesting in my personal experience is something that you just said, which is this hope, maybe this suspicion or whatever that you will find new belonging somewhere else. And you do, you do that as it turns out, it's not the center of the world. And there are these incredible communities out there in the wilderness and they're beautiful and they're vibrant. And in so many ways they're spiritually flourishing. And I wish I could go back and tell myself that sooner because my only regret is that it took me so long. And so it is true that that strength of heart, not only will it see you through, it will lead you forward into spaces that are so lovely and beautiful and interestingly curious. The door's not locked, you know, the door is not locked. pet peeves for just a second. I have one that I recently discovered when I was getting my finances in order and I don't like fees. Okay. That's what I discovered. I mean, no one does. Right. But those pesky hidden fees that might be small, but they add up, which is why I have been loving chime. And if you haven't heard of this, it's an award-winning app and debit card, and it has no monthly fees and no overdraft fees for eligible members. You can overdraft up to $200 on debit card purchases and cash withdrawals with absolutely no fees. You can also send money to anyone, even if they aren't on Chime. And you guessed it, that's fee-free for you and no cash out fees for them. So for me, this part has been so convenient for friends and family and my team, because who in the actual world has cash on hand when you need it? No one. So make a good decision in this first quarter of the new year and join over literally 10 million people using Chime. Sign up takes about two minutes. That's it. And doesn't affect your credit score. So get started at Chime dot com slash for the love. So that's chime C H I M E dot com slash for the love. Banking services provided by and debit card issued by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Overdraft only applies to debit card purchases and cash withdrawals. Limits start at $20 and may be increased up to $200 by Chime. See chime.com slash spot me. Look, we know time is money and we could probably use more of it. I love using stamps.com to score some extra minutes that are added right back into my 24 hours. And this happens because stamps.com scratches the post office right off your to-do list and lets you print official postage from your laptop while saving you money. Stamps.com gives you access to hugely discounted rates like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. So that adds up y'all. And with their rate advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and times to easily find the absolute best option. When your mail or packages are ready, you just schedule a pickup or you drop them off. It's just easy as that. So whether you're officing from home and mailing a bunch of papers or invoices or packages, or maybe you have a sweet little Etsy side hustle, you just get to spend less time shipping the stuff and more time doing the stuff that matters. They've been around for more than 20 years, you guys, and have been indispensable for more than a million businesses. I'll tell you right now, the Jen Hatmaker team uses stamps.com for literally everything. And of course, over in the Jen Hatmaker book club every single month. 
So stop overpaying for shipping with stamps.com. Sign up with promo code for the love for a special offer that includes a four week trial, free postage and a digital scale. And y'all no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page and enter the code for the love. I want to talk about this hair flesh. Okay. Yes. Ah, oh, you have it. Girl, I got the advanced reader copy and I was like, oh my gosh. It's so <laughs> also let's talk about this cover. Wowie. Beautiful. She wow. did such a good job. Yeah. I mean, I have real severe envy when I look at it and I just want you to know that. And I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a little sorry. I'm so happy to have this copy in advance and it's just incredible. Can you talk about it? Can you talk about how the work you've been doing shaped this book? Where did the story start? Was it hard for you to share the story of your family and life? What are you hoping your reader walks away with here? So this here flesh, it's 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 grounded in a lot of the things that Black liturgies was founded on. So things like Black dignity, Black lament, Black rage, rest, liberation, those, that's kind of like the chapter makeups. And I approach it through the stories that make up three generations of my family. So my grandma and, and my father and, and me. And a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago, pandemic does weird things to time. Yes, but it does. I, started, <laughs> I started interviewing family members to start collecting and preserving some of our stories. And I began with them, my, my father, and my grandma, and there was such a bond. There was such a connection between our three stories that I was just incapable of writing anything else when the time came. I was I just need to get this out. I need to start here. I need to start with the stories that made me. I'm hoping that, I mean, going off of what we were just talking about, I'm hoping that people experience a kind of spirituality that truly is liberating, that truly is asking them to expand as opposed to narrow in. Instead of zeroing in on exactly what you think about every every topic and every doctrine, a, a spirituality that's more so grounded in, you know, storytelling and the things that that I'm about. And, and that's about asking questions and not receiving answers immediately. It was difficult to tell the stories of my family. We're a private family as well. <laughs> it was just difficult to enter those stories and with such specificity and feel the pain and in, in my father, and my grandma's voices and know things that I've only known fragments of up until now, but just to watch these stories, beautiful and painful, kind of pour out of them was really difficult. And in the editing process, my grandma passed away, actually. And she was just so looking forward to holding this book in her hands. And so, you know, really, it's become this project of grief, I think, as I'm closing it out and starting to you know, waiting for the books to come. I think it's for me going to be a season of a a lot of goodness and a lot of grief. And I'm hoping that other people are able to experience that as well, to process some of the stories that made them for what they are and the pain of them and the beauty of them and process that with me. I'm I'm ready, but I'm nervous. Very yeah. Nervous. It's going, I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be beautifully widely received. I think this is probably just going to be such a monumental experience for you to put this out into the world and then to receive what's going to come back to you. 
from it. It's very powerful. It's very beautiful. Your work in long form is special. Like a lot of us know you in short order. We know you in clips, social media clips. And so this extended story of yours that we get to really see laid out on the page is very invitational and I'm highly vulnerable. And so I can understand how you're feeling, (laughs) but I'm just telling you that it is so lovely. And I can't wait for people to know you like this. This is more personal than maybe ways in which people have experienced your leadership thus far. So I'm excited for you and I'm excited to bang the drum for you for sure. So I'd like to know this as we kind of get close to wrapping up here, we're writers, we understand and have long understood the power of words and their effect on people's minds and their hearts and even their trajectories. It's powerful, the word. They can comfort us or they can break us. And so I'd love to hear from you. And you've you've touched down on some of them, but some of the words, some of the writers, some of the creators who have spoken or written words into your life that have deeply shaped you, everything about you, your faith, your gifts, you just as a human person. Mm -hmm. I would have to start with Toni Morrison, specifically Beloved, which is actually where the title of my book is derived from, a scene in Beloved. Her words and and her fiction writing specifically has just opened up to me the, the power when Black people are articulated with nuance, you know, where we're not always heroes, we're not always villains so much goodness in her characters. And actually thinking about your question, it's Toni Toni Morrison, I'm paraphrasing, but she says language alone is the thing that protects us from the scariness of things with no names. For people like us who love words, I think we're entering into this kind of calling of being protectors for people who aren't able to maybe articulate things themselves, who aren't able to articulate their own terrors and and beauties that they're encountering. So yes, I'll say that. And in addition, I think The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin has deeply formed me. Their eyes were watching God. If you want to talk about doubt, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. And there's a poet named Ocean Vuong who's so big. I feel like his work is crazy. It, I, I just his mm-hmm. mind, his voice, uh-huh. everything he says. But uh-huh. I, I would say he's the probably the primary voice forming me right now is Ocean Vuong, his poetry and his book on Earth were briefly gorgeous. That was my first introduction to him on Earth were briefly gorgeous, and I picked it up because of the title. I'm like anybody who can come up with this title, I want to see what's inside this book. So, and I, in fact, on my last book, I used that title in my proposal. I'm like, how can we capture this magic? What is this magic? And they're like, you don't have it. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just saying that this is what I love in the world is so his just grip of the, of the English language is dumb. I love that you mentioned him. Nobody ever knows who he is when I'm talking about. (laughs) I know. Uh (laughs) Hopefully you can get him on the podcast someday. Yes. Right. (laughs) mental health. You know my record here. I am a big proponent of prioritizing mental health and my receipts go back decades on this. Okay. So in addition to therapy, there are a number of tools that we have in our toolkit to help take care of us in our lives and to feel empowered, to find courage and hope. And I want to tell you about a new one that I found. It's called Noom 
mood. So with new mood, you take the journey to mental wellness one step at a time. Their guided approach teaches you the power of shifting your mindset in just a few minutes a day. They'll help you better understand your personal relationship with stress and anxious thoughts so you can take control and build resilience and develop coping mechanisms that actually work. There are so many nuggets from New Mood that I've already put in my back pocket to use as gentle reminders and mindset shifts. New Mood also has a team of dedicated coaches as a support system along the way. All you need is 10 minutes a day. That's it. And it's an app. So it's there for you anytime, anywhere. So y'all worry less and feel happier. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash FTL. That's N-O-O-M.com slash FTL. All right, Cole, these are a couple of questions that I'm asking everybody in this series on Faith Shakers. Here's the first one. Just for you personally, what is the biggest shakeup you've ever had in your own personal like faith? And if it did, how did that change your view on religion or church or God or whatever, or people, whatever it was? I mean, biggest shakeup would be a year and a half ago. I was diagnosed with a few retinal conditions with my eyes. I've, I've had a history of chronic illnesses and they explained to me just kind of the risk of, you know, I'm at a greater risk of losing my vision prematurely. And that experience, I think, changed how I think about each day, changed how I think about expectation and how I think about wonder and beauty and what I'm, you know, being able to visually behold each day. I think I've become a person much more prone to slowing down and and marveling in the wake of that news. And in that, I think I'm experiencing God more in, in mundane ways. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm really sorry to hear that, but what a lovely answer. Thank you for sharing that. This is the last question. Everybody gets this one. You've got your finger on the pulse of liturgy. So you've probably, or maybe read some of Barbara Brown Taylor's work. Yeah. This is her question. She was one of the first sort of liturgical spiritual leaders that ever gave language to me to make sense of some internal tension. And so she's special to me too, but her question is this, and you can please answer it in any which way. What's saving your life right now? Yes. Adore this question. And I will go with the mundane and say dumplings. (gasps) Yes. Oh my gosh. No one's ever said this. This feels so important today. Yes. A friend of mine prior to the pandemic had taught my husband and I how to make traditional dumplings and we're awful at it. We're awful at the folding, but there's something about the practice that just makes me feel close to her and close to people that I care about. She's Taiwanese American. And yeah, it's just been a really beautiful ritual that I'm grateful to be a guest to in this season. Yeah. This is exciting. Do they taste good? They're so good. They're so good. And it's her recipe. It's nothing to do with us or the, like you said, the way we're folding it. So good. I love that answer. Thank you for saying dumplings. That made me feel really happy. In my heart. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> okay. So before I let you go, just as, as a reminder, will you tell my listeners where to find you and everything, the book, all the things? Yes. This here flesh is available anywhere books are sold. You can buy it at a local bookstore, preferably a black owned bookstore. If you can, you can also follow me 
at Black Liturgies on Instagram or at Black Liturgists anywhere else, pretty much. And my website is colearthurreilly.com if you want to sign up for my newsletter. Yes. Okay. Very, very proud of you. I love your work. It's not just beautiful, it's important and it's timely. And this is yours to do, and you're doing it. And I recognize that there's a cost built in to this particular lift for you. And I just, I honor it and I respect you for it. And thank you for paying it because you could have done easier work. Your, your command of language is so special that you could go in a hundred directions that have a lower cost. But the fact that this is where you go, this is where you send your, your words is I'm grateful. I'm grateful. They've really meant a lot to me. And I can't wait for more of my community to follow you and to listen to your leadership. And I can't wait to talk about this when it comes out in a minute. You should be proud. You should be really, really proud of this. And you can stand by this wholeheartedly. And I can't wait to watch people fall madly in love with you because they're going to. So (laughs) count me in. I'm in your corner. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I feel like I could listen to you talk for 20 straight hours. I really could. I have a million other questions, but we have to, we have to live. We have to Sadly, live. Yes. Sadly, we have to live. Okay. Thank you so Thank much, you. Cole. So much love to you and your husband you and your people. Yes. Yes. Bye. Bye. See what I mean about her? Just this steady stream of wisdom and profound thoughts and strong leadership and like a pride and dignity that I'm so drawn to. I, I love her and I want you to love her. And so I would love for you to follow her everywhere. And I would love for you to buy this hair flesh, her new book. If you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, we will have not only this whole episode, but all the show notes and the link to every single thing that is coal related. So you can find it all in one spot there. This is a good one to share and a hundred percent hop on IG and go follow her right now. And remember her Instagram account isn't her name. It's black liturgies. Okay. So that's what you're going to look for over there and you'll get a taste of her work and you'll see what I mean. So anyway, lucky us to have this caliber of people in this series. And I'm so grateful that they offer this, this particular type of labor to my community. I'm just always grateful for this. And I will always be so thankful for it. All right, you guys way more in the faith series here. We have an incredible lineup of leaders and thinkers and writers and pastors that are leading us well right now, leading us into important conversations, places of tension, places that need reform and re-examination. So don't miss any of it. If you have, go back and pick them up. And should you ever want to watch interviews as opposed to just listen to them, these are always posted in video form over on my YouTube channel. So you can pop over there if that's how you like to receive this type of content. You guys, thank you for listening and downloading. Thank you for subscribing to the show. You've just kept us going strong all this time. And that's simply because of you. So we love you and we are so committed to this community. All right, you guys see you next week.